History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. And by now we know they don't have to go untold as long as we do something about it before it's too late. We want to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And along the way, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but we end up finding ourselves truly inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. As we bring you our final episode of 2023, I realize that 2024 will be the 20th year that all have had the privilege of sitting down with World War II veterans and sharing their stories with you. It's hard to believe those years have flown by so quickly, and I can reflect on so many remarkable men and women who are no longer with us, but who have added to our perspective through their willingness to share theirs. Looking back over the stories we got to hear here on Hometown Heroes in 2023, I remember the emotional story of a cowboy in Montana detailing the lengths to which he and his son went to return items he had brought home from the Battle of Okinawa to the daughter of an enemy soldier who didn't get to come home. In Kansas, we met a Marine wounded on Iwo Jima, only to find out months later that his brother had been killed in Okinawa. Right along the California-Nevada border, we found one of the wildest survival stories ever in a merchant Marine veteran named Dick Burbine, who later joined the Marine Corps, and more recently, a member of the Dutch Underground, as well as a World War II vet who wrote a book about a member of that Dutch resistance who saved dozens and dozens of Jews from the Holocaust. We got to tell you about a new book that tells a story that had never been told about the African-American sailors who perished on the USS Indianapolis. The list goes on and on and on, and you can access all those episodes at hometownheroesradio.com. But for this final episode of the year, we're going to revisit some memorable stories shared on these airwaves in 2023, when we actually got to branch out a little bit beyond World War II. In fact, the voices you'll hear today represent World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and even a Medal of Honor earned in the more recent War on Terror. Let's begin with a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel that we got to meet in Colorado. Glenn Montgomery grew up in Oklahoma, where he actually used to ride a pony to school. And here's what he remembered about December 7, 1941. There was a game that called down one person who was it, IT, bend over, put his elbows on his knees, and he would become a, a saddle horse. We'd get our hands on his back, then the rest of the body would flow past there. And we were playing this game, and somebody said, What's that noise? Who's that? Who's yelling? And we heard talking about uh, war in the Pacific. I didn't know who it was because the kids that I played with were right there. And we found out one of the kids came by and had still had papers in a white tarpaulin type of a bag. And, we, of course, we were curious and asked him about it. He said that they were selling papers in the streets because of the 
bombing. And we asked him, what bombing? He said, he didn't know. I thought it was, thought it was somewhere in some ocean. And he said, he didn't mention Japan, but he said somebody bombed somebody. And of course, we there was the paper, and some of us could read. And there was Pearl Harbor. And we said, where's Pearl Harbor? And uh, his boy said, he didn't know, but it was in an ocean someplace. <laughs> and I, I said, I never heard of Pearl Harbor, and I had no idea where it was. So that was our beginning. Well, we, myself and... Wayne King and uh, David and Joseph Coomer went to the... In those days, the recruiting office of the services was in the post office. All it consisted of was a desk and a chair. So we went down to the Brave Us to show how brave we were. We went down there, and there was quite a, a gathering of adults, or possibly two or three hundred people. This recruiting started, I assume he was recruiting, because he wore an armband that said recruits. And we asked him what was going on. He explained it to us. And why are you kids here? How come you're not in school? And we're down here to join up. He told us, he said, if you have any idea of joining the service runs right now, you go home and get me a piece of paper and bring it back. It says this and signed by your parents and I'll consider it, and I'll talk to you. Well, that was the end of that. He put the Kaitas on. Well, but Wayne King and I kept at it. We're both Navy men. Why? I have the faintest idea. Well, I guess it was because of the ship, because Oklahoma's dry as a bone. <laughs> and Well, I was finally drafted in, out of high school. Took a bus ride up to Oklahoma City, where the physical examination place was. The bus load was... Kids about my age, maybe some of them were. I remember one adult who was a brother of one of my friends, his name was Ziegler. He was probably 40 years old, and he was on the school bus with us going to Oklahoma City. Anyway, we went through, got a physical examination, loaded back on the bus, and shipped us to Fort Sill. Fort Sill is near Lawton, about uh, 100 miles southwest of Oklahoma City. I was put up in some barracks. They issued us uniforms. Some fit, and most didn't. <laughs> and I got a somebody checked me sometime in the, during the morning hours. Said, "Get up, report to the mess hall. You're on KP." Well, I was on KP for 13 days, washing potatoes, a hundred-pound sack at a time. <laughs> and luckily, they had a potato peeler. Put the hundred pounds in there, and whoopoo, potato mash. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were shipped out. Woke up in the morning. Also, they had a. Uh, Marshalling yard there or Fort Sill. We were loaded on passenger trains and headed south, south of Duncan, as Comanche, and then Kiowa, Warika, all of those Indian names. Of course, the rumors flew in every direction. Well, if we leave it up to a bunch of draftees, kids, the rumors fly and fly fast. One of the jokes was that when we get someplace, Fort Smith, Arkansas, we were going the opposite direction from Fort Smith, Arkansas. The joke was, if you're drafted and if you don't go to Smith, you go to Fort Bliss. Well, we wound up in Fort Bliss on the train. I still didn't know where we were. The joke was that when they give you the physical at Fort Bliss, they shoot you in the left testicle with a needle, and it stunts your growth. <laughs> the, the, the rumors, they make them up. I mean, <laughs> boy, there's it's, no no telling. Well, about, about dusk on the third 
joy of being parked in Fort Bliss, they hooked us up with another train headed for Needles, Arizona, Southern California, on all up the coast. Finally got to Camp Adair, Oregon. Nobody knew where it was, what it was, when it was. It's not there now. It was, it was released and given back to the owners. But anyway, that's where I took basic training. Right then, I'd been in the army about uh, a week or two. <laughs> We were the first troops, first drafted troops to be issued the M1. The rest of them were 03A3s. But anyway, we went through basic training there. Do you remember what it was like to go overseas? Eyes wide open. Had you ever been on a ship before? No, I'd never seen one before. (laughs) (laughs) So what was that journey like across the Atlantic? Like an 18-year-old on a brand new ship because everything was new to me. The ship's horn blow so loud, so long, and so deep. It just, it was awesome. It was just awesome. The biggest thing I'd ever seen was probably a, a, a bull. But here was a ship that, well, there were 7,000 men on that ship. So, yes, it was a, it was a thrill. And what'd you find on the other side of the pond? Marseille, France. It had been raining and raining and raining, and they pulled up to this barn, and they herded us all into the barn. There must have been, oh, I'd say 20, 25 trucks full of GIs. There was a batch of us. Well, a whole infantry company. That's about 180 men. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stayed there. That was, that was comfortable because there was a lot of straw, and it was warm. We were dry. But as in all stories, the good comes to the bad, and they mount us up again into a truck, this time with no canvas cover over them. And we uh, we were soaking wet by the time we got to... From then on, the move towards the Rhine River was a, a maze of marching, charging, running, shooting. It was cold. It was damn cold and wet. And uh, we were running around looking for. Uh, we'd use all the firewood that was in the, and had been stored in the, uh, in the uh, uh, corral. Somebody yelled out, "Let's burn the doors!" Well, those doors were be- that thick. Of course, they'd make idea. And Lieutenant said, "No, we will not destroy the, the place." But he said, uh, if, "If you can find something to burn, we're going to do it." He says, "How about the piano?" And, of course, Lieutenant, being a pianist himself, almost had a died of a heart attack. But anyway, he, he says, well, why not? He pulled, a, you know what a, a German hand grenade looks like? Uh-huh. The, the potato masher? Yeah. He raised the lid and pulled it and said, hit the deck. And blew that piano. And, and <laughs> I don't know how many. But anyway, it made hot fire. But that's the way we burned the piano. What would you say was the hardest thing for you to deal with over there? What challenged you the most? To have a friend either so badly wounded that he would die or was killed on the spot. I preferred him to be killed on the spot because uh, I found that the ones that are still alive, knowing who I was, trying to, well, when you see my wife and my children, you tell them this and blah, blah, blah. But the best thing was if a man that was you were close to, was shot and killed, dead, buried. That's the end of it. Go do your job. 
What a way to live. And you told me you put in a total of 31 years in the Army? 31 years in the Army. I mean, we, we can't possibly tell all those stories, but what was your rank when you finished up? Lieutenant Colonel. I forgot to salute when I walked in. <laughs> you can go back and come back. <laughs> I'm sure you made a couple guys do that over the years. But you did tell me that you earned the Purple Heart. How did that happen? I remember being in the hospital on a cot, and they came by and put a Purple Heart on the bed. How long were you in the hospital? About six weeks. I got a shell fragment in my right groin. And I went back to the hospital in, in London, outside of London. We were right, I was right across the street from the uh, British uh, Hopper House. Next morning, I got up. Stuff was scattered all over the room, all over the street, all over the road, everything. My first experience was the German rocket that they fired. The V-2 had hit the edge of the serpentine, and it blew a hole in there that you could put a serpentine in two or three times. But it missed this opera house. It did not miss Glenn Montgomery, one of several Purple Heart recipients we met this year on Hometown Heroes. Glenn would go on to serve in the Korean War as well, which is when Ivan Wolgamuth spent his time in the Army as a medic. I was in the Army for two years, but I got to Korea on New Year's Day, 1953. I landed at Pusan, and we got off the ship. And when we got off the ship, they gave us uh, what we called Mickey Mouse boots, thermal boots, and a big heavy overcoat, and then K-rations. And we got on a rickety old Korean train and went north. We ended up at Yangdong Po, and there they uh, assigned us to our different units. Then I was in assigned to this 123rd Medical Psychiatric Unit in a holding company. We were there for some time, and then we moved out, went to another camp a little closer towards the front lines. My buddy, Irvin Taves, was also from our church, and he went to uh, Inchon to the Air Force Base there, and he was a baker, but on Sundays, he and I would try to meet with each other at the 51st EVAC Hospital. Finally, I got enough other guys to go there, so they would furnish us what they called a weapons carrier, like a truck. So we'd try to meet there as often we could. They had a good chaplain there. We also had, once in a while, a chaplain would come to our unit, and we'd just have church in a tent, and these army benches that are just canvas and fold open. And the time I was in uh, at night, I spent 14 months on uh, cots, you know, just uh, regular old cots with a mattress. And later on, I got a sleeping bag. It was so cold in winter. Our river close by, the Inchon River, would freeze over a meter thick. And then uh, summer, it got so hot and humid, and we had to watch out for mosquitoes. And there were other buddies that I knew, too, had ended up over there. Just before the, oh, I guess it was in 1953, about April, they had a wounded prisoner exchange up by Pan Moon Jum. Of course, uh, it was out in the rice fields. The Army engineers had put down a metal bat so the helicopters could land and ambulances come up and exchange prisoners, wounded prisoners. That was interesting to me. Later on, when we were missionaries in Japan, all of a sudden I got a letter and saying that the 
Korean government was willing to give any veteran one week of hotels, food, and sightseeing if we could get over there. So I told my wife, we were in Japan already, let's just go. Didn't take long, and we landed there at Incheon Airport, and and that's we spent a week and were able to go up north to the place where we had been. And then we um, went up to the 38th parallel where they've had those uh, meetings with the north and the south. And our leader told us now, you can walk around the table, don't make any gestures, but that way you have been in North Korea. <laughs> and <laughs> and so uh, that's what I can say today. I'm still to this day very happy that I could be in the service. I think about it almost every day. Not always easy, but it was rewarding. I've interviewed a fair share of veterans who didn't get to meet their firstborn child till they came home from war. And I've always tried to put myself in their shoes and, and there seems to be a couple sides of it. It's It seems a little bittersweet, right? I mean, you'd really like to be there and isn't there an element too of, well, I, I better make it home now? Yeah, and after I finally got home, I went to, um, we landed at Camp Stoneman here in California. And, and then we were, when I was out, I was looking for my folks and folks-in-law and Finally, they saw me, and my wife came out with our daughter, Sandra. And I was so happy to see them both. If you are a parent like I am, it's pretty hard not to feel the gravity of that emotion, isn't it? It's time for our first break, but still to come, three more veterans and the memories they shared with us on Hometown Heroes this year, including a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. 
Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a special year-end episode reflecting on some of the powerful stories we got to hear on this program in 2023. World War II veteran Les Doyle showed us a whole museum full of Chevrolets he has restored in his retirement, but he never would have had that opportunity without a little help he received in the Philippines, where he came ashore at Leyte the same day that General Douglas MacArthur made his famous return. I waited ashore (laughs) with MacArthur's group. There at the on October twenty, I was with the group. Uh, that's a a great day in history. October morning of October twenty, and I was there with MacArthur and his group. So tell me about it. Was that as big a deal at the time as it seems to be now? Did you understand the significance of that? I wouldn't say that I understood uh, all the significance of it. Uh, to me, I was just trying to do uh, what needed to be done at the time and uh, do my job. So what did you have to do there? Well, my job of action has always been uh, communication, uh, keeping the lines open. So you guys come ashore there, and it's the same thing? You're you're going into the jungle to string telephone line and make sure they can communicate? Yes. So we just try to do what, whatever your job was, just try to do it the best you can. Well, and when I showed up at your house here in Strathmore, the first thing I noticed was your your big sparkling photo from when you went to Washington, D.C. with Central Valley Honor Flight in April of 2015 and all you guys in front of the National World War II Memorial. The next thing I saw was a P-38, and I was trying to figure out, why is there a P-38? You weren't in the Army Air Corps. What is going on here? And then I realized uh, this entire metal sculpture here is made out of bullets, different calibers. The stand is one caliber and the twin fuselage is a a different caliber. I'll put a picture of this at hometownheroesradio.com, but you made that little sculpture for a very special reason. Tell me the story behind that. Well, one day when I was uh, searching for uh, breaking a line, uh, there wasn't a group around or anything. I was sort of by myself uh, searching the line. And then uh, I hear a plane uh, coming and look up and here's a zero pursuing in my direction. So what's going to happen? Am I going to get bombed out? But before that zero had the opportunity to get to me, here come a P-38 out of the clouds, and that was the end of that zero. So this P-38 pilot saved my life literally right there on the spot. And so I'm a creator of different objects and whatnot. I just had to create this little miniature P-38 as a little memory of uh, what happened that day, a tribute to the P-38 pilot. And, you know, I'm not trying to be melodramatic about it, but there are a lot of questions that arise because I just heard you say that he saved your life, and I could tell that still stirs some emotions for you. You know, this is almost 80 years later now. So if that P-38 hadn't been there, what do you think would have happened? I wouldn't have made it home. That's in plain English. I'd been a few fragments left there from the plane. So you think the plane would have dropped a bomb, destroyed the work that you were doing and you? Yeah, or, or machine gun me, you know, down. Uh. So before that P-38 came out, and I realize this may be seconds we're talking about, the span of time, but what was going through your mind when you saw the Japanese plane coming your way? Because there's not a lot you can do, is there? No, uh, you know, I have the good Lord on my side, so I'm not uh, one to uh, uh, fret a lot or whatnot. Uh, I was there to do a job, and I was trying to do it. And if this plane uh, comes in there and bombs or shoots at me, whatever, uh, so be it. That was my job to do, and I was going to do it the best I could. Yeah, and again, I realize this can transpire in the 
a matter of seconds. But I'm just curious for you, is there a thought, well, I need to try to take cover? Do you sit there and say a prayer? Are you scared? I'm just wondering about the emotions involved. Well, the, the emotions you have in a situation like that, a person like me that has a good solid ground to cling to, whatever comes about, comes about. Uh, you're there and uh, you're at their mercy. So uh, unless somebody comes along to assist you, why, uh, you're in trouble. So the other half of that is, what did it feel like when you saw that P-38 Lightning come out of nowhere to shoot the Japanese plane down? I just took a deep breath because I was so grateful and thankful, and that's the reason that I created this miniature uh, P-38 out of bullets to uh, constantly remind me through life of uh, what that plane pilot did for me. How long ago do you think it was that you made that? Oh, I made it. Uh, I brought these uh, shell pieces home from the war, and I got right onto it as soon as I got home. So these, these shells are from... World War Two, and you've had that? Shells home from the war, yes. And the trouble I had trying to construct a little plane like this, I just had the old family soldering iron to heat it. Well, with this copper and brass and whatnot, I'd heat one area there and my anchor lead would run out another spot because the heat transferred so in, in that. And so I had a little problem creating my plane. <laughs> Well, it's still standing. It has stood the test of time, and, and we'll put a little photo and a video of Mr. Doyle telling that story at hometownheroesradio.com and the Hometown Heroes Facebook page for you. Have you ever wondered who that pilot was or what happened to him the rest of the war? No, I can't say as I did because uh, he got away at that point, so that was the end of my uh, connection to that. I was so grateful that he come in, though, and uh, knocked that other plane, that zero plane, out of the way and... Uh, Saved my life. That's what credit him for, is saving my life. Again, that was World War II veteran Les Doyle, one of so many veterans who shared emotional wartime moments with us on Hometown Heroes in 2023. Another was Bob Wynn, who served as a company commander in the 3rd Marine Division in Vietnam. After I was there for two weeks, we were in a major base called Fubai, and it was kind of down in the rice paddy area, and that's where I picked up my platoon uh, on January 4th, and uh, it seemed kind of quiet and we ran ambushes at night and patrols during the day, and nothing ever seemed to happen, and I thought this was pretty easy duty. It was kind of like a walk in the sun. Then they loaded us on C-130s and told us they were taking us to a fire support base up on the DMZ called Kantien. And when we got up in the air, the plane turned suddenly sharp 90-degree left, which to me meant west, and uh, they told us where they were taking us to a place called Quezon, which ended up being a rather famous uh, siege combat base during the early part of the first Tet Offensive of January 1968 and lasted through about April uh, 1968. And um, so I was on a hill position 5,000 meters outside the wire protecting the combat base with a couple of other rifle companies, and eventually they let us. We just sat there and took a pounding, Uh, We were supposedly surrounded by 30, 40, 50,000 NVA. Nobody knew for sure on hillsides on three sides of us, which was not a good place to be. And uh, eventually they let us 
out of the wire in April, April 6th and 7th of 1968. And we were the first company-sized patrol that ever went out of the wire anywhere. And there were about 5,000 Marines on all the hill positions in the main base. And as the first company-sized combat patrol, it was obviously we were going out to search and destroy. And uh, we, we went up two or 3,000 meters out, outside the wire, up, up one of the ridge lines that was surrounding us, and we ran into the enemy. And uh, that day, um, the first day, my platoon was in reserve. We lost probably half the people in the first and third platoon. The second day, we went back up. Um, my platoon was in the lead, and we went up with uh, 43 men in my platoon and only seven walked off and I was not one of them. Uh, Only seven went back that night. The rest were all medevaced. That was my first real experience at hand-to-hand, being close enough to be able to, you know, shoot at people eye-to-eye, throw hand grenades at each other. And while I was in the landing zone waiting to be medevaced back to Da Nang, I had one of my sergeants die in my arms and he kept looking at me saying, help me, lieutenant, help me, help me. And I knew from the uh, wounds that he had suffered that there was nothing I could do but just to hold on to him. And you're a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. I I can feel, I don't know if stoicism is the right word, but you're in control of your emotions as you describe these intense experiences very matter-of-factly. But as you share that story of holding that Marine in your arms, I get the sense that when you talk about that, you see that again, you feel that again, you're there again. Yeah, I told that story probably 50 times, and it, I choke up every time. You remember his name? Staff Sergeant Herman Lohman. And he'd been in your platoon for a while? He was my right guide, um, and that's like the you have a platoon leader who's a lieutenant, and you have a platoon sergeant, and then you have a right guide, so he was like the number three guy. So, I mean, even somebody listening who's never been in the military, they can think of the people they spend time with, their friends, their, you know, the ones they go out to dinner with or play golf with or whatever. I mean, this is somebody that you're spending that kind of time with on a daily basis, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So most of us have not been in that situation that you're describing. Can you help us understand what that feels like, what that's really like in a moment like that? And if I'm not mistaken, while you're holding him in your arms, knowing that he's not going to make it, you're wounded yourself too, right? Yeah but not near as seriously as a lot of the other people were in the LZ. And you know, the thing that I talk about is that it takes me back to what my father said. You can do everything right, and everything goes wrong. And I, and I did everything right. It just part of, We went out looking for them, uh, and we found them, and they found us, and it was just a dogfight. What do you feel? What do you think? What do you focus on in a moment like that? Your friend is in your arms, and he knows he's not going to make it. I don't know. I think you're just kind of numb, but I, I described that. Uh, you ask about a significant incident because that was the first experience. I had been there about three months, and that was the first experience where I physically, we were in a firefight, and uh, I physically lost people. He wasn't the only one. There were a lot of others, too, that died that day, but he was just one that I, I physically watched him die in my arms, but it prepared me for the next Thirteen nine months that was left, or nine or ten months that was left on my tour. So it was the first time, but it was, certainly wasn't the last time. So it just prepares you. You just get steeled to the fact that this is what you do, and this is just going to happen, and you just have to move on. It's your job. 
These days, Bob Wynn helps his fellow veterans deal with the effects of PTSD. What a noble calling. It is time for our final break, but when we come back, one more powerful story we heard here on Hometown Heroes this year from a man who gave up his hand to save multiple lives and was awarded the Medal of Honor as a result. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend. It's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is. Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to this special year-end edition of Hometown Heroes, reflecting on just a few of the powerful stories we heard from veterans on this program over the past year. So far today, we've revisited memories from veterans of World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. But the final veteran we'll hear from is an Army Ranger from New Mexico who earned the Medal of Honor in Afghanistan. Here are Leroy Petrie's memories of May 26, 2008. It is a life-or-death job. It's not like working at Burger King where you forget to put somebody's lettuce on somebody's sandwich and, oh, I'm sorry, we'll fix that. You can't, you can't bring those things back where once you train someone and a bullet leaves their barrel, you're responsible for that barrel, bullet as much as they are. You try to teach them ethics and, and to be a good person, but also to be a good soldier. The Ranger Creed was one of those things that I always looked at and they told me if you live your life by the Ranger Creed, and your decisions you make, you look at the creed, you'll be okay. Historically, that's what they did in World War II. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get up those cliffs, and they looked back at General Norman D. Cota, and he said, Rangers, lead the way. And we've been trying to maintain and hold that standard since then. The day before, um, Rangers operate during night activities. We, we don't want to kill every terrorist, put it that way. A live terrorist is worth more than a dead one because dead ones don't talk. 
And so we'd try to catch them while they're sleeping, and we'd go at night operations because we had night vision and we had uh, the cover of darkness. This day before our mission, we got alerted. All special operations in theater in Afghanistan, hey, there's a high-value target that's come up on the net that we think is operated in Afghanistan somewhere. Everyone's going to stand down. Whoever is closest to him when he pops up will action on it. And so during the daytime, we normally sleep or we uh, do our check our email, do laundry, all our other stuff, and go to the gym. But uh, that morning, I woke up and I went to the planning bay, and there's one officer across the room from me, and he's on his laptop, and I'm checking my email, and all of a sudden he jumps up. Patriot, go wake up the pilots. Didn't even question what it was about. Just ran to go wake up the pilots. Immediately went and woke up my guys as well. I said, hey, something might be going on. Check your kit. Be ready. It's better to be prepared than reactive, proactive instead of reactive. Mm -hmm. But um, as I did that, I, I went to uh, our chow tent, if you will. And uh, it, as I walk in there, it's decorated red, white, blue everywhere. And I'm like, what's going on? I get to the end. I was trying to grab a couple of little bags of beef jerky. We got stuck out a couple days before and uh, longer than expected and morale from the young guys, oh man, we were supposed to be back already and you throw up a little bag of beef jerky and it boosts their morale. We call it lickies and chewies. <laughs> but uh, as I was doing that, as I get to the end of the table, I see the sheet cake and it says happy Memorial Day. And I'm looking around and I'm like, wow, took a moment of silence. Our up-tempo was so high that uh, I mean, by the time you look at the date, you're like, man, we've already been over here for three weeks or whatever it may be. And uh, after I paid my respects, I ran out the door and immediately told my guys, check their equipment, and we started planning for this mission. The guy actually popped up in our area, and so high-value target, quick mission planning. Next thing we know, we're on three Chinooks headed out to the mission. Uh, rural Afghanistan, a lot of farmland and uh, adobe-type houses and compounds and as we came off the Chinooks the other hard part about it is because we're flying during daylight you can hear a Chinook helicopter out for miles mm -hmm. and so as we land and the ramp goes down in the back we're coming out the back we're taking fire and the guy in the open field politically correct term we neutralize the threat <laughs> and uh, as we're clearing the body my platoon leader and I we hear it over the radio that one of our younger squad leaders had gone into the wrong compound and he was correcting it and going across the road and I said, hey, I'm going to break off, provide overwatch for these guys and he said, go ahead. As I caught up to that squad, they had already breached the compound wall, which was probably about 20 foot walls and uh, they were already entering into the compound. I followed in as the last man. As they did, they went across the compound and started clearing a... Uh, smaller structure in the back corner, uh, kind of a uh, two-story, and, and it had an inner compound in there, but I didn't even go in. I stopped in the doorway, and I, I said, give me another guy. My big thing in my mind was we needed to clear the rest of this courtyard in the adjacent small building. And so as soon as I got a tap, I didn't even look who was with me. I just knew I had somebody with me, and I started to move. It was uh, PFC Robinson, and as, as we started to cross to this small adjacent building, Two guys popped up probably 15, 20 feet to our left, spraying AK-47s from the hip. I got uh, shot in my left thigh, and it felt like a sledgehammer, like somebody just 
pounded your leg and kind of looked like a deer when it gets shot on TV where bucks mid-stride, mm-hmm. but then kept running because my ment- mentally I was thinking, get out of the kill zone before you take another hit. Uh, Robinson got hit just below his arm armpit. Um, he didn't know how bad it was. We found out later it was about a quarter of an inch from going over his plates and it would have hit his heart, his lungs, and he probably would have died there instantly. But he followed me, got behind the small building. This building's only about seven feet wide, about six feet long. And immediately I tell him, hey, watch that corner, do self-aid, and I'm watching this corner. They're shooting around the corner still. And I prepped a grenade, threw it over, it went off, kind of bought us a lull in fire. At that point, uh, Sergeant Higgins, another ranger, comes running over, and I said, hey, help Robinson, watch that corner. My biggest fear was they were going to come over and around the sides and finish us off while we're injured. Mm-hmm. And so I get on the radio, I'm, I'm giving my command a better picture of what's going on. Um, tell them we still have rangers in contact, heavy small arms, uh, and two wounded eagles. And next thing we know, we hear a blast. The two guys next to me look at me and they're like, what the heck was that? And I said, they're throwing grenades. Keep your heads down, keep watching those corners. So I'm, I go back, I'm almost in a crouched seated position because my leg was hurting. I'm checking my side, watching my corner, turning back, checking on them, checking back radio, and on one of my checks to check on them, there was a uh, pineapple grenade that had come over the building and landed right behind them. I knew we hadn't used pineapple grenades in years. It wasn't there before, and so just immediately saw it as a threat, and reached out, grabbed it, and as I was throwing it away from our position, as soon as I opened my hand to release it, it exploded. Completely took the hand off, almost like somebody had taken a circular saw and cut it off. Um, I sat up, grabbed it. The radius and the ulna were poking up about a half an inch. It was bleeding pretty, like more like oozing, and the skin was hanging all the way around. Short, two-inch skin, flat skirt, so to speak, and uh, I, I, in my mind, I was thinking, why isn't this thing spraying three feet in the air like in the movies, blood just squirting? And when reality hit, I said, I, I know how to take care of this. I grabbed a tourniquet, put it on, tied it with my teeth in my hand, stopped the bleeding, and immediately checked on my two guys who got minor shrapnel. In fact, they uh, they both uh, stayed, went out on missions the next day and stayed in the military for some time longer, but... Uh, mm. Once, they, once I saw they were okay, uh, one of my first arms comes running up to me and he grabs me by my shoulder, by my kit, and he's tr- attempting to pick me up and say, come on, we're going to get you out of here. And I kind of pushed his arm and I said, you're not taking me anywhere. Not till you kill those SOBs behind the building and stop the volume of fire they're putting down on us. He saw that I was coherent. I had already started doing self-aid, and the best thing he could do was take out the enemy that, and stop them from firing on us. So he... He took off to go flank at that point. When he left, uh, there was another lull in fire. I don't know if they ran low on ammo or what it was, but I was able to grab onto another guy, and, and we ran out of there till we got to our casualty collection point. And at that point, we walk in, and uh, the medics are treating guys, and you see blood everywhere. And, and uh, for me, it was the first chance I got to take a breath. I mean, the adrenaline and everything running. And the doc, one of our medics, comes walking up to me and says, Petrie, we need, to, we need to treat you. And I said, I'm good. I already got a tourniquet on this thing. I stopped the bleeding and helped those guys. 
and he said, well, we've got to take a look at your legs. I completely forgot about my legs. And uh, I thought I was only shot in the left thigh. It ended up being uh, both thighs. And so I, um, I looked down at my pants, and they're soaked in blood all the way to my boots. Mentally, I wanted to stay in the fight, uh, but physically I knew I was running out of juice. And my, my idea was that um, even if I used my last breath, to give a radio call that could help my guys, that's what I wanted to do, but uh, I knew I wasn't helping anybody by bleeding out, so I sat down and I let them cut off my pants, and they put me in a litter, and as they started to carry me out to our helicopter landing zone where helicopter was going to come in from medevac, um, guys are running up to me, and they're, they're hey, you're going to be all right, you're going to be all right, we're going to get them for you, and I'm pushing them away with one good arm I have. Get out of here. Go pull security. Because, I mean, we're still in a combat zone, and there's still sporadic fire here and there. And my big fear is that they're going to get shot coming to comfort me. Mm. And I uh, never lost that leader mentality of looking out for my guys. And uh, which, which is worse, I might get shot where I can't defend myself in this litter. Then I'm really going to be angry. But... Uh, we get up uh, to the aircraft, the aircraft lands, and they start loading us up, and even Sergeant Higgins next to me, he's leaning down, and he's like, you saved us, you saved us. I was like, great, get on the bird. Mm. I'm thinking big target, still thinking about their safety and everyone's safety, and uh, at that point, they took us back to uh, our forward operating base, Sharana, which is a dirt airfield, dumped us on the side of this dirt airfield, all the casualties, and then the helicopter took back off to support the mission, and... I think it was probably about 30 minutes later, they had a fixed-wing aircraft come in and pick us up. It was the, the J. Mao Bird, which is basically like you could do open-heart surgery in the back of this plane. And at that point, I was like, oh. And I had two PAs that were working on all of us casualties there that were organic and who I'd known since I had pretty much joined the Rangers uh, several years before, and uh, I felt a little at ease. Um, but uh, get on the aircraft, they load us on there with the litter and probably about 30 more minutes and uh, they heavily sedated me and the next thing I remember is waking up in Germany. Germany was interesting. I wake up the next day in Germany and uh, the nurse is in my room and she says, oh, you're awake? Um, can I get you anything? I said, yeah. Can you get, can you get me a razor and some shaving cream? She kind of does this double take and she goes, um, excuse me? I said, can you give me a razor and some shaving cream? And uh, she looked at me like I was nuts, but uh, in my mind, that discipline of being in the Rangers was still at the front, where I was more worried about a colonel or somebody coming in not from my unit and seeing Leroy unshaven. Nobody would have cared in the condition I was in. I was pretty mangled, but uh, that was our, our standards in our blue book was Rangers will shave every single day to include weekends, holidays, at home, whatever. And so I, I learned how to shave left-handed that first day, but uh, I also got a chance to call my wife, and I knew she was going to be an emotional wreck. At this time, it's Memorial Day back home. And my mother-in-law would come in sometimes to help with the kids, and, and they were both in their nightgown. It was early in the morning, and they got the knock at the door. And they'll come in fatigues, field uniform if you're injured, and uh, dress uniform if you're killed in action. And she walks over the door and she looks through the peephole and 
She doesn't even look at the uniform. She just sees the tan Ranger beret, and she backs away from the door, and she said, Mom, you're going to have to send the kids upstairs. You're going to have to get the door. And um, I knew all this was going to happen. And so I'm trying to think when I call her, what I can tell her that will put her mind at ease, that I'm in good spirits and I'm doing okay. And so I call her and I said, Honey, um, I'm in Germany. I got shot through both my legs, upper thighs, and I lost my hand right about the wrist. Phone goes dead silent. So, of course, the uh, hamster on the wheel upstairs starts running as fast as it can to come up with something good to tell her. And I said, the good news is the junk's still there. And she's like, all right, he's all right. He's going to be okay. If he's joking, he's, he's in good spirits. But uh, that's the only way I could let her know that wow. I was doing okay. Wow. Well, I got a lot of questions. Some of them may be more on the dumb side than others, but they were basic anyway. I'm sure you've considered this. What would have happened if you didn't pick that grenade up and throw it back? Well, the kill radius is usually five meters, so uh, chances are we'd all be dead. How many guys is that? Uh, definitely the two next to me, but uh, there was a couple others as well nearby. And, and yourself? And myself, yeah. In that moment, how does that thought process work? Are you thinking at all? Are you just oh. reacting? Wait. It had always been foremost in my mind that uh, I looked at those guys like they were my brothers, like they were my children, and I would have done the same for them. I, I do want to share a picture with you real quick. Yeah. Uh, artist did a rendition of the action, and he did a painting. This is a picture of the print, and it doesn't do it ju justice. You know, actual oil paintings hanging at my unit, and it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so that, that was me laying on the ground with bloody legs, mm -hmm. with the grenade, but... Um, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. Most of us will never be in that situation, and anybody watching or listening to this is likely never going to be in that situation. But I think people imagine themselves in it, and they have to ask themselves the question, what would I have done? What do you think it was that motivated you to act the way you did? I know, I know exactly what it was. It's a thing we don't talk about in the military that often. Uh, definitely not in the Rangers unless we're talking about beer and chasing women, but uh, um, love. Mm. There's love for a fellow soldier and uh, responsibility. With leadership comes responsibility. And my biggest fear, uh, people ask me, were you ever afraid? I said, yeah, I was afraid every single day. I wasn't afraid of dying. I made my peace with God and I said goodbye to my family. I knew it was the last time I could see them. Uh, and I accepted that. But uh, what I was afraid of was I would miss an IED in the road. I'd miss a shooter in a window. I'd miss the opportunity to train my guys on something that could have saved their life. And what I feared was having to come home and hand that folded flag to a mother, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a husband, a father, uh, you name it. And... Um, what I did, though, was I, I turned that fear into awareness. I made sure I didn't get complacent, and my guys didn't get complacent, even though we'd been down the same road a hundred times. I took the opportunity to train them on things that, tasks that we hadn't been given just so that they were more prepared. And um, I never uh, lost sight of uh, my job was to bring them home alive. Now, war is hell, and you can't control everything. And... I wanted to know, though, that at the end of the day, if I had to hand a folded flag to someone, that 
I did my best to bring their son or daughter alive, home alive. And so that's the way I looked at them, and it's instinctive to uh, care for them. Medal of Honor recipient Leroy Petrie, one of so many veterans who allowed us to view our freedom in a little different light this year by sharing their experiences here on Hometown Heroes. Thanks for listening today and all year long. I'm Paul Leffler wishing you the happiest new year and inviting you to stay tuned in 2024 when we'll be reminded each and every weekend through the stories of our veterans that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.